0: Just wanted to remind you that the show is intended for entertainment purposes only and is not legal advice. I am not your lawyer unless we separately agree for me to represent you. And the views expressed by Mesh and me are solely our own. Well, hey, everyone. Thanks for coming to Better Call Paul's first live recording at Millbank, And thank you to Millbank for hosting. I'm Paul Sarker, your co-host. I'm a lawyer at Greenberg-Trarig, and the man of the hour, Tafik Rangwala, is our guest, actually Better Call Paul's first guest.
1: Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Paul. It's really exciting to be uh, the first guest on Better Call Paul. Tell me
0: a little bit about yourself. I'd like to hear about what you do. You're a partner at Millbank. Obviously, you do internal investigations, and you wrote this great book that we're going to talk about tonight. But what's the topic behind All of that (laughs)
1: that's a great question i've forgotten (laughs) well i am a partner at millbank as you say my practice is uh what we call white collar criminal as well as a lot of civil litigation work behind the scenes i'm very active in the saba and sabani community so i want to say a big thank you to saba nationally and sabani in new york um, for hosting uh this event along with better call paul and millbank and the people who've joined us here live and those who are on zoom and outside of my Millbank life, you know, one of the things I do in the law is I spend a lot of time on pro bono work, which is served as a bit of an inspiration for me writing this book and actually being on the board of We Charity. And then occasionally I, I drink and go out to eat for fun, too.
0: The one thing you're not getting on Zoom is the food and drink, which is really excellent. It's interesting that you can find time to do all this because you're on the board of We, and we'll discuss this as we get into greater detail. But why don't you tell the audience a little bit about what We Charity is? is, or what it was, and your connection to sort of the founders, the Kielberger brothers, that'll give people context as to why it was such an important topic.
1: Sure. And I think it's probably helpful to give a little more context because I'm speaking to a U.S. American audience, and this is in some ways a distinctly Canadian story. Part of the background is I'm Canadian. by background grew up in Canada. And if you live in Canada or you are a consumer of Canadian news, you've heard of something called the We Charity Scandal. And you probably heard of We Charity because it's a very famous Canadian institution. It started about 25 years ago as a anti-child labor movement called Free the Children and morphed in time into something called We Charity, which is an organization that is based in Canada, but is global and has two real facets. One is service learning, which is essentially putting curricula in almost 30,000 schools across the US, Canada, and the UK that helps young people realize their potential as agents of change. It essentially promotes volunteerism and something called service learning, basically helping people find opportunities to do good in their communities and globally. And then the second prong of WE Charity is it was an international development organization that provided sustainable development programs in Kenya, India, Ecuador, China, and a whole host of other countries. That's what WE Charity is. And would it be helpful to talk a little bit about what the We Charity scandal is? I
0: think so. I mean, so basically it's an organization that is devoted to helping the less fortunate and to getting youth interested and excited about volunteering. So that sounds like the kind of organization that politicians would want to tear down.
1: (laughs) Well, they, they, they loved it before they hated it. That's the story. But, you know, We Charity was really a darling in the Canadian space. That's the interesting part. The founders of We Charity are two brothers. I've known them since they were young, Craig and Mark Kilberger. And they're really household names and were celebrities in Canada for a long time. And they were heralded as pioneers in the charitable world because they were doing a lot of innovative things to really make a difference. And it really galvanized young people. And they were media darlings. They were courted by politicians of all stripes. And they hosted this set of concerts called We Days. And We Days were these big concerts that kids who participated in meet-a-we clubs in schools. And that's the celebrity
0: connection here with Better Call Paul. So was it Demi Lovato and Selena Gomez and a host of others,
1: right? All all in, all in. That's your celebrity connection, exactly.
0: Check that box.
1: There you go. So so there was a lot of celebrity ambassadors, a lot of corporate sponsorship, a lot of people who really believe that You know, We was making a difference and wanted to get involved. And it was a huge Canadian success story. I I say in the book, it was the charity and the organization that could do no wrong. And it eventually became the organization that could do no right after the scandal.
0: Right. But not really through any fault of their own. So you're at We Charity, you're on the board. And I think you should, because I read the book. I don't know if everyone in the audience has, although there will be a quiz at the end. And the highest score gets an autographed copy of the book.
1: He's joking. Everybody who's here gets an autograph copy of the book. They're all there. <laughs>
0: Didn't the Kielberger brothers,
1: fu- so they started this organization when they were in middle school or high school? Craig Kielberger started the organization when he was 12 years old. Wow. And his older brother, Mark, I actually went to high school with Mark, you know, joined the fray when when he was in, I think, uh, some part of university. But Craig started it as a 12-year-old. He read a story in the newspaper about a child laborer named Iqbal Masi in Pakistan who had been killed was super inspired to f- feel like he needed to take some action because this was an anti-child labor activist, started a club in his school, and suddenly that club morphed into going to all these countries, fighting child labor, morphed into suddenly sitting on Oprah's couch and morphed into being on 60 Minutes and morphed into a massive global charity.
0: Yeah, no, it's great. And, and Mark, you went to school with Mark, and Mark was the Rhodes Scholar? Uh, Mark was a Rhodes Scholar, okay. yes. So, you know, not some um, bum, Uh, Yeah.
1: Well, again, I, I think these days it probably depends on who you talk to, but yes, not some bum.
0: Yeah. Anyway, you're involved in WE, and let me just ask you, I know it's pretty demanding in my role, but I can't imagine, you know, you being a partner having a lot of free time to travel the world, volunteer, do pro bono work, give back. So
1: this must mean a lot. And how did you find time to A, be involved, and then B, write the book? It was challenging, I'll admit, I think you have to have a few things going for you. One, you have to have a really supportive family. I certainly had that with my wife, Rippy, and my extended family and my son. And that was really important because it wasn't going to happen without that because you, you end up working on a project like this. I didn't take a leave to do it. Often, sadly, between midnight and 5 a.m. Oh, wow. Because that's, that's the hours you have. And so it's got to be labor of love. I think you also need a supportive law firm. And I'm lucky to have found that in Millbank. I was very hesitant when I first approached some of my partners and the chairman of our firm about whether this was the right thing to do. And everybody was very supportive. And that was really important. And then frankly, you just have to have a lot of passion about the subject because it's hard work and it was taxing. And I really felt compelled to write this book. I felt like I was uniquely positioned to tell a really important story. And if I didn't do it, there was a good chance no one was going to do it. And so I felt like it was a really important thing to do. They were
0: supportive before or they were supportive when it became the number one bestseller in Canada. They 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 were supportive before,
1: and we'll we'll, wow. have to, we'll have to see if anyone's noticed at the firm that it's become the number
0: one bestseller in Canada. I'm just speaking from personal experience because I do this podcast, which is not anywhere near as demanding as writing this book, because I do it in waking hours. As a litigator, as an, a lawyer who does internal investigations, did the skill set that makes you successful at your
1: job translate to writing this book? It really did. I mean, I I think the book was very much a Complementary to my skill set as an investigator. And that's why I wrote it in some ways. Because this really book was about, you know, there was a scandal, and we should talk a little bit more about what the scandal is so the audience understands the right. backdrop for those who haven't read the book. But at some level, this was about the things you do when you're conducting an internal investigation or defending clients in financial fraud cases. It's about following the money, it's about focusing on evidence, it's about being skeptical, and it's about looking past the obvious and trying to make sure, dig deep to really understand the facts, ask hard questions, conduct lots of serious interviews. So in in many ways, the process of writing this book was a cross between being a lawyer and an investigative journalist for me. So I think maybe now is a good
0: time to talk about the scandal specifically. So We Charity, they have a lot of international projects and they were looking at the impacts of COVID in China and projecting what that would mean for the organization. So they were doing some very specific and some guesstimation as to you know what they would need to do, how they would need to budget, what staff they would need, what staff they would retain, and what staff they wouldn't. And they got an opportunity around the same time the Canadian government wanted to start a program, the CSSG, which would help high school students whose jobs were being sort of canceled or who, summers, who wouldn't otherwise be able to obtain summer internships as a result of the pandemic, but maybe would have in normal times. They were looking for a way to help them get summer internships and and through volunteering. And they were willing to provide stipends to do that. Now, this project to do it nationwide for all the youth was overwhelming and there was no one in the government who would be equipped to handle that. So they needed to outsource that function. And the process to find a third party to run this was flawed. And although they told We Charity that there were multiple organizations were gonna submit proposals, only one proposal was actually ever submitted, and that was from We Charity. They, the government picked We Charity, and the fact that We Charity was awarded this contract and they had been connected to Prime Minister Trudeau's family in some way because Margaret Trudeau spoke at We Days, as we talked about earlier, that led some politicians who were anti-Trudeau. They seized on that and basically said this was a, an inside job. Trudeau, was he's corrupt, and he was handing this quote-unquote billion-dollar Contract to a charity without any sort
1: of formal process is that was that the start of it? I think you did all of that just to prove you wrote the, read the book. <laughs> yeah, no, but no, but let, let me. me that again. was not in the Wikipedia. None of that was. Let me, let me, but I, I think that was a great synopsis. But let me add some okay. some context and some flavor, if you will. So I think the the key point is we charity was a flourishing organization in Canada, and when COVID hit, the Canadian government came up with this idea the CSSG, as you called it, the Canada Student Service Grant. And it seemed to come up with a pretty simple idea, the liberal government led by Justin Trudeau in Canada, which was, look, it's going to be hard for young people to get jobs in the first summer of COVID. And the way we're going to help is by providing a grant program that will defray the cost of university by allowing students to get a $5,000 grant if they volunteer with a charitable organization. It'll help charities in Canada, it'll help young people, and it'll help up to 100,000 people. And the government said, we need to get this off the ground, and it's April, and we want to do it this summer. And so government bureaucrats called We Charity, and We Charity answered the call. It was very reluctant to do so. I talk about that in the book because it was so overtaxed helping its own international programs, but it felt like it had to do it, and it was called to serve. And one of the cool features of the book is that the foreword to it is written by the former prime minister of Canada, Kim Campbell. And she talks a lot about her own parents in World War II and what it means to be called to serve by your government in a time of need. Something that most of us don't talk much about anymore because we're all very cynical about government. And We Charity felt like it had no choice because its raison d'etre was connecting volunteering opportunities and young people. And so We Charity said yes. And it decided to administer this program. It was not gonna make any money doing so. And it was a $550 million program. And the moment the program got out of the gates, opposition politicians in Canada who were trying to get at the Trudeau government, particularly because the Trudeau government was riding high, because people thought, unlike some other governments, that the Canadian government was doing good at handling COVID and the pandemic. Opposition politicians were looking for a way to attack the Trudeau government. And this was a ripe opportunity because Trudeau had been mired in ethics scandals before, and so they basically said, "Ah, this is cronyism. Your appointment of We Charity to run this program is because you, Justin Trudeau, have appeared at many We, Day, we Charity events over the years. Your wife, Sophie Gregoire Trudeau, records podcasts on mental health for this charity. Podcast got that in, <laughs> sounds, and sounds criminal. Yeah, and 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 Margaret Trudeau, who was the Prime Minister's mother." was a paid speaker for the charity on mental health issues. And they said, well, you're just bailing your friends out in a difficult economic time, the Trudeau government. This is cronyism. We don't believe that the government couldn't run this program on its own. We don't believe that this was the only organization in Canada that could do this. This is a handout. And essentially it stuck. The media ran with it, opposition politicians on both sides, conservatives and ultra liberals used this to great effect to tarnish the Trudeau government. And in the process, you know, and this is what the book is really about We Charity became collateral damage. And every aspect of We Charity came under intense scrutiny with really unforgiving politics and a really unforgiving media that suddenly turned on the Kilburgers and We Charity in ways that I think were pretty unfair and unfounded. And the end of the story, just to round it out, is that We Charity closed its doors in Canada. And the net result of that is that. 7,000 schools no longer have programs on bullying, on the environment, on mental health. 300,000 Ethiopian children will no longer go to elementary school. A million people in Kenya will not have drinking water. And I don't think politicians in Canada or elsewhere or the media has really ever grappled with those facts. And so that's what prompted me to write this book and why I called it What We Lost, because it was a play on words, but it seemed like no one had really ever taken stock of what was lost through these very political acts. And I felt like the the media landscape, it was just a completely absent analysis that no one was doing. And it was really shameful from my perspective. And so that's that's the purpose and driving force behind the book. I couldn't agree more. How long have you been in the, practicing in the United States? I've been in the US for almost 20 plus years now.
0: Do you see any parallels between the American political system and our media?
1: And what happened with the We Charity? Absolutely. One of the themes of the book is that I think the We Charity scandal, as it's come to be called, and if anybody Googles it, you'll find a million hits in a Wikipedia page, and you'll be like, oh my God, I'd never hear about this. One of the themes of the book is that it's a cautionary tale about what I call the Americanization of Canadian politics. And if you're Canadian, you'll understand what that means. If you're American, you'll understand what that means, which is you know hyperpolarization and partisanship um, basically screwing everything up. And that's sort of the reality that I think most Americans have come to terms with, you know, ever since the, you know, Obama leading into the Trump era, you know, everywhere you go, all you hear is invective and shouting and no middle ground at all. And I think most people in Canada, as an expat looking back in, but, but as a proud Canadian, I think a lot of people in Canada like to think themselves above that. They like to think of themselves as more rarefied and, you know, our politics more thoughtful than what they see south of the border. And I think this story was about, well, hold on, maybe not so, because the partisan nature of our politics in Canada and the way the media handled it reveals that Canadians too, like so many countries in the world these days, are prepared to destroy things in the name of partisan gain. And I think that's that's really sad and a really important tale. And so so that's a big theme of the book.
0: Your book discusses a lot of the processes and the various hearings and the steps in the Inquisition. And at no point did anyone say, Hey, We Charity does a lot of good. Was that sort of irrelevant to this
1: whole issue, or was it drowned out? I think drowned out is the right word because I think a lot of people will say, well, where where were all the supporters of We Charity? You know, they had millions of people volunteering. They had Millions of people coming up. They had all sorts of celebrity ambassadors. They were powerful in the media. Where did the people go to defend them? And I think a lot of those people spoke up, but they were drowned out. I think the reality was it was a tidal wave of political ammunition. I mean, the We Charity scandal, just to give people perspective, was the second most covered story in Canada after COVID and before the economy. There were 125,000 news references to the We Charity scandal, and almost all of it was negative. And it was just picking apart every aspect of the charity's work of its business partner, which is a social enterprise called me to we And there was just really no room. So many people I interviewed for this book will say to me, Topic, I tried. It was just like shouting in the wind. And so many young people would you know, talk to me or teachers who used to benefit from this programming in their schools, teachers by the dozens would tear up and say, you tried, but no one would talk about it. It just became toxic overnight. And it was like, to talk about it, people would dismiss it. Or worse, all these players on social media would criticize you and call you a sock puppet and call you names so that most people just didn't want to put their head above the parapet and went and hid. But not you. But
0: not me. And so can you talk about the process specifically of writing the book and when the light bulb went on and then how you broke it down? Did you treat it like a litigation?
1: How did you come up with the idea to write the book? Yeah. So I I wasn't looking to write a book. This was a book in many ways that I felt compelled to write. I wasn't like some law firm partner was like, wow, I really want to write a book someday. That wasn't me. But I was on the board of We Charity through the whole We Charity scandal. And I had a lot of affection for the organization. But at the same time, I'm pretty cynical. And when you're reading articles every day about everything's a sham, everything's shady, everything's cronyism. I mean, you got to pause and be introspective. And I was like, did I drink the Kool-Aid? You know, have I been, have I missed something? Is the wool being pulled over my eyes? And so I was very concerned. And I, and if someone was doing something untoward, I mean, they were accused of everything you could possibly imagine. You know, I didn't want to be a part of it for one more minute. Uh, but I also at the same time felt like if it's unfair, it deserves an airing. And I was the only lawyer on the board. And so in many ways, a lot of people looked to me for guidance and as advice as to how to handle a crisis. I mean, crisis management is my practice. And so- for me, I went through it all, and I describe it in the book as a game of whack-a-mole. I don't know if people know that game. I I, I can't tell if it's a Canadian reference. We'll find out no, no, in a minute. No, no, it's not. No, but it's that game you play at a carnival where basically you slam down a, a mole, and then the next one pops up, and you hit that down, the next one pops up, and suddenly, frantically, they're popping up, and you realize you can't keep pace, and that's the way my experience was on the We Charity board of directors during the scandal, and it coincided with COVID. And my wife, Rippy, is here in the audience tonight. I mean, she'll attest to that. It was just like this crazy show where I'd be on board calls till three in the morning. Every day, a new element of crisis would unfold. And it was just this whirlwind. Anyways, I, I lived through the whole thing. And so you asked how the book came about. You know, towards the end of that, I got approached by a publisher in Canada who said, look, you know, would you be interested in writing a book on this story? Can you tell us approximately what time that happened? It was in I think, March, April of 2021. So the scandal was still unfolding. It was still unfolding. I mean, well, many people thought it had finished. And then as I started writing the book, it picked up steam again. And it it really went, I mean, maybe some would say it's still going, but it went all the way until the end of 2021. So as I started writing the book, unfortunately, the story was still evolving in real time. And some of the most challenging aspects of it, including criticisms of the international programs and suggestions that maybe donors had been misled in some way. All of those were coming out all the way until December 2021 while I was writing the book.
0: Right. Because I, I remember you couldn't have waited for it to wrap up or end, right, to start because then you would have written it in like three months.
1: <laughs> I was, my goal was to actually write it in one summer and that became like a pipe dream very quickly. You did a lot of interviews, I assume, and were yeah. people willing to be helpful in, the, in your process or was it combative? No, no. So it was very interesting. I, I did, yeah, I did more than 50 interviews for the book. And I think a lot of people were willing to speak to me. And I, I spoke to people from all walks of life. I spoke to students, teachers, I spoke to celebrities. I mean, the book is filled with these testimonials like Martin Sheen wrote this testimonial as a celebrity, but I have local school teachers who wrote testimonials in the book about their own experiences. I spoke to philanthropists, lawyers, charitable workers, billionaires all sorts of different people from all walks of life. And I think people were really forthcoming. On the other hand, and I thought this was one of the real tragic elements of the book is so many people had deep tear-filled conversations with me, particularly the people who had worked for We Charity. We Charity had thousands of people and 40,000 volunteers around the world. Many of these people were young people whose golden star on their resume was their work for We Charity. and. They'd been robbed of that. Suddenly they were figuring out how to like write their college essays, masking what they had been doing for four years, which they thought because was- Because it became the toxic. It became toxic. Yeah. Well, people wanted jobs and suddenly they thought We Charity was a ticket to any job they wanted because it was so famous and renowned for being hardworking and business-like approach to charity. And suddenly they didn't have that. And they cry in our interviews. And then I would say, look, I got to tell your story. And they would say, oh God, topic. no, not on the record. Not on the record. And I'd say, well, Why? And the answer, well, no, 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 don't put me in the book because they were so afraid because the environment had been made so toxic that they just didn't want to be out there any, any way. They, they had had to explain themselves to their families, to their friends. There was just such a cloud over the charity. And it's so amazing. You'd walk the streets in Toronto where I was hiding out through most of COVID because you know my family was up there. And so I had this opportunity and you'd see it, you'd talk to people. And they would just dismiss We Charity. Or people were like, oh my God, you're on the board? They couldn't believe it. And people just had this negative view, right? Because there's so much smoke. Mm-hmm. And no one really knew if there was a fire. And when you ask people, well, what do you think they really did wrong? People would say, oh, I, I don't know. I don't know. There must be something. They would just I repeat
0: mean, talking points. Well, who,
1: who's right? Why are, why are there 50 articles on the front page acting like there's something wrong if there's nothing wrong? And the job of the media you know, in an ideal situation is to do the work of being investigative journalists and analytically looking at what politicians are saying, looking what pundits on social media are saying and saying, do those facts add up? And no one was doing that work. Lazy media,
0: very dangerous. Buttercup Paul does the work. (laughs) All right. (laughs) So I would say, and there's another aspect of this, you talked about it, the international side of we and the development and the media basically had this narrative that they needed to advance at all costs, even though they couldn't find any support for it. Can you discuss that just for the audience so that they know?
1: Yeah, look, it's hard to get, obviously, in this forum too deep into the weeds. So I'll try and just do it at a very high level. And then those who want to engage with the book can, and I'm happy to talk about it. But I think- The most difficult part of the We Charity scandal was coverage by some pretty esteemed outlets in Canada, including the CBC, which is a Canadian broadcasting corporation. They have a show called The Fifth Estate. And that's the title of the last chapter of the book. And The Fifth Estate is kind of like a 60 minutes-like show. And they did a segment on the charity in which they suggested that some donors to the charity might have essentially been misled, right? Well, misled in the sense that they had been double pledging. There was this sense that they might've thought that they supplied the complete money to build a school in Africa or build a well in an African village. But it might be that other donors also thought they contributed to the same well and was We Charity in some ways double pledging. And you know that's a really difficult allegation because a charity really can't survive allegations of donor deception. That's the worst thing that could possibly happen. And it was a bit of a catastrophe. And I really spent time unpacking that reporting. And what I discovered was that it's just false. Like, it's just false. It's not true. And when a lot of donors discovered that, a lot of the donors who were actually featured in the program wrote to the CBC and said, you need to correct this. You've misrepresented what I said. I don't believe that. And the CBC said, no. Then 70 donors who represent the largest and and the majority of donations to We Charity's programming in Africa wrote a letter saying this is not true. I've been there on the ground. We know what happened. We disagree. We wrote an open letter to the CBC and published it in the newspaper and the CBC refused to correct its reporting. And then the CBC, you know, We Charity kept saying, please come to Kenya. Come to our programming in Kenya. Let us show you what happened. And the CBC said, no, 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 no. And then finally showed up in Kenya unannounced. And when they showed up in Kenya unannounced, We Charity tried to say, let us give you the maps of all the schools. And they went on their own village by village without actually talking to We Charity or any local staff. And they almost actually got thrown out of Kenya. There was like an international incident almost where the government of Kenya said that CBC had illegally entered its schools and flown drones over schools improperly. And so it was this crazy show, basically. It was like a nutty situation in which you had a bunch of journalists at the CBC who were so fixated on proving their point that they were willing to do anything. And I unpack it in the book. I mean, you have to read it. I I don't think I could explain it in a- Maybe we can do a movie deal. We can do a movie deal. But I met with the governor of Narok County in Kenya to talk about it. I met with local politicians. I met with people on the ground. Here's the craziest thing about the CBC's reporting. It was a report on Kenya and what we charity did in Kenya with no Kenyans. And that was the craziest and most offensive part of it to me. It was entirely the perspective of what do white rich donors think about their money and how it impacts Kenyans. Not a single interview about what it meant to Kenyans, about what the Kenyan people who live in these villages in the Maasai Mara, who have been benefiting from We Charity's programming for two decades, who are how they felt.
0: Very appreciative of the hard work that we did, right? Yeah. And they
1: were supporters. And not just appreciative in a way that it's like a handout. They were partners. They were partners and communities in which We Charity was helping for five to seven years build a sustainable development framework. There were 2000 Kenyan mamas, as we call them, who were working on beating in women's empowerment centers in Kenya, and then selling those products in Nordstrom. And it was the second best-selling product in Walgreens. And their livelihoods are gone in the middle of COVID. And the CBC went there and it didn't talk to them. And again, I just go back to this theme of what we lost. Those forgotten voices, those unheard voices, it was really disturbing to me. And so really the driving motivation for working midnight to 5 a.m. for this book for me was to make sure that those voices finally were heard.
0: Uh, so you don't sleep or you get some sleep? No, I
1: sleep now. You sleep now. I okay. Sleep
0: now. And uh, back to you mentioned that there were other charitable organizations in Canada that not only received a much larger amount of money from the Canadian government, much more both in terms of absolute dollars and in percentage of their revenue, but some also compensated Margaret Trudeau for speaking at events, yet we were singled out. Was it entirely, in your view, because of the... CSSG? Or was there something else? Is there another factor that you could point to that made the media so fervent in tearing them down?
1: You know, there was a lot of things. The We Charity scandal is super interesting because there was a lot of things going on at the same time. And I don't think it escaped really simple answers. What's both depressing and cool about this story is the whole We Charity scandal takes place in parallel with the COVID pandemic. And then it takes place alongside a lot of other important forces in society, like Black Lives Matter. And like a lot of different trends, like polarization and the Trump administration and January 6th. And so many things are happening in the world that are influencing the way people think. And I think it all impacted why the We Charity story was interesting to people. And Trudeau, to your point, was a part of that mix because Trudeau was a very bit of a celebrity politician. He loves a good photo op. He is celebritized, if that's a word, around the world in some ways. Dreamy, I, yeah, dream. Okay, the I wasn't going to use that spirit. word, but I, uh, but yes. I accept your characterization. <laughs> that is the way some people feel. Some people, some people yeah. feel that way. He's got good hair, and I, I, I respect that. Um, <laughs> but, but, uh, but no, but, but I think Trudeau loved We Charity because We Charity was exactly the kind of platform he likes. It was screaming stadiums of young people talking about how to make the world a better place and looking to him as a role model we charity welcome Justin Trudeau to the stage because he was a prime minister who wanted to participate and engage and build the profile of the charity's programming and so i think opposition politicians love to pick on that sort of celebrity element of the trudeau government and sort of to attack it say yeah you're these guys are all in bed with celebrities you're a celebrity like them you're you know, insincere, you're basically corrupt. It's interesting because Trudeau had an opportunity to, and you talk about this
0: in the book, to maybe shield we from some of this criticism and to be transparent about the process. And instead he prorogued, is that the he term?
1: He prorogued parliament, yes. Who do you think, if you could say, is most to blame for <laughs> this you, you know, it's travesty? A, believe it or not, it's actually a pretty really common question. And I think that's because everybody wants a villain. Every story needs a villain, but the truth is we escape easy villains here. I think there are a lot of people to blame. Trudeau has some part in that. And I'm not shy about saying that in the book. I think the government could have done a lot more to send a clear message. I think there was a lot of self-protection at the expense of the charity. I think they walked away from a lot of important facts and that's kind of sad. But I think there are a lot of opposition politicians in Canada, including some pretty important people There's a guy most people in this room will have never heard of, but is important to Canada. His name is Pierre Polyev. And Pierre Polyev is now the leader of the Conservative Party in Canada. And he's got a very right-wing agenda. And he became famous partly because he was the champion of the We Charity scandal. And there's another guy named Charlie Angus, his counterpart, former rock musician turned politician, who is one of the leaders within the NDP party, which is the very left-leaning party in Canada. And they together essentially just spread misinformation and lies about We Charity, no matter what was corrected. It didn't matter. They just stuck with the story and the soundbite over and over again. You've never heard of anyone in the United States who does that, But, but basically they would just say it. So if the answer was, it's actually a $500 million program, they would say, cool, a billion dollar program in which Trudeau gave it away. And you'd say, well, it's $500 million. And they'd say, cool, a billion dollar program. And after a while, the Globe and Mail, which is Canada's largest newspaper, had printed a billion-dollar program, something like thousands of times. And when we charity ask for a correction, it's not even a billion-dollar program. The Globe and Mail will say, well, yeah, well, we Googled it. It's in the book. It's a joke. The Globe and Mail says, we Googled it, and billion-dollar program is used more times than 500 million-dollar program. So we're going to go with it and not offer correction. And you just, you literally can't believe it. You're like, it's just wrong. It, you're saying the light's green and it's red but people went with it. <laughs>
0: yeah, they did. And it's really troubling that the politicians who advance this advance their careers and the real victims are kind of, is anyone other than you speaking out about this?
1: I mean, I think a lot of people are speaking out about it now. I mean, I think many of the donors, as I said, there was a huge percentage of donors who had made big investments in We Charity programming and had galvanized others to do so. They spoke out in scores of letters and public articles to the CBC. I think they've gone unnoticed, but those are like federations of nurses, billionaires, politicians, former elected officials, all sorts of people have spoken out. But I I do think that it has not gotten much traction. And even with this book, I wrote this book, you know, you said it was number one on the bestsellers list, and that was very exciting. But I will say, you know, it's been hard getting traction from the mainstream media to cover the book, even though it talks about very important things and big trends and has had a lot of advertising. And I think part of the reason is the book is very critical of the media across the board. You know, it's really not about like some villain. It's, you know, the Globe and Mail, the National Post, the Toronto Star, the Toronto Sun. all of them, not attacked, but their coverage is dissected and hard questions are asked and the CBC too. And as a result, they don't want to cover the book. They're really just avoiding it at all costs. Because they don't look great, right? Objectively. Yeah, and and because they've laid down a footprint in which they've just said, we charity bad, and we don't want to talk about it anymore. The story's done.
0: You were on the board, and I know things were happening fast, and it's kind of just crisis to crisis day to day. Short of declining to participate in the CSSG, is there anything that you would have advised we to do differently than they did?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, the truth is, I mean, this is part of the story, too, is I'm not an apologist for We Charity or the Kielbergers. My intention in writing the book was to be very independent, and I take stock of the mistakes the organization made. You know, some of them I may bear a degree of responsibility for, others are by the charity. But there's no question that they made mistakes along the way, and I would have advised them to do certain things differently. They answered some media questions with information that turned out to be wrong. And the fact that it was wrong just made people question them more. So give you a good example. The question was asked, did you ever pay the prime minister's mother? Did the charity ever pay the prime minister's mother to speak at events? And I think an answer that was too cute and too legalistic was given, which was, No, the charity never paid the prime minister's mother to speak at events. Now, technically that was true because We Charity's sister organization, Me Too We, which was a business, did pay the prime minister's mother. And then it was found out that in fact there was a clerical error and $1.7,000 accidentally got paid by the charity. And a journalist found that out. But that was mana from heaven for these politicians. They're like, aha, We Charity is in bed with the Trudeau government. We Charity is trying to cover up the fact that the prime minister's mother got paid. And so it amplified everything. So there was definitely things where I would advise the charity to have been a lot more open and careful. I also think the charity was, and the Kielburgers in particular, they have built this over 25 years. It was their baby, and they are incredibly protective of it. And- I think sometimes that caused them and the charity to respond too forcefully, both in testimony before parliament and in combating every error. Too forcefully for Canadians. You know what? That's such a great statement. You're absolutely right. Too forcefully for Canadians. That's a really insightful comment because... I was like, why didn't they sue earlier? That's right. That's right. <laughs> and and an American lawyer understands that in a way that I think is foreign in Canada. And so I think they're combative, aggressive, some might say, although they would deny this and disagree with it, litigious approach, I think caused some people to to view them as more suspect than they, they should have been. And if I could have, if I could put the genie back in the bottle or as a board member have resisted that temptation more times, I think I would. So we, their programming internationally
0: is going forward on a limited basis. They sold off some real estate assets and endowed that. Do you think we can make a comeback in Canada?
1: I think it's going to be really hard to make a comeback in Canada. I mean, I think the brand is pretty toxic and pretty spent. I think there are a lot of people who want that. I get emails every day from teachers and students asking me if that'll come back and the programming will come back and can I help and how can I help? I think it's going to be pretty hard. But I think, you know, the programming is still built out of the U.S. and is available digitally now. And I think that helps a little bit. But no, I I really do think a lot has just been permanently lost in Canada.
0: And around the world. So let's say the media comes to their senses and says, you know what, we were wrong about a lot of this. We rushed to judgment. We didn't have our facts. And they look bad, but they realize that the bigger picture, maybe there will be bigger beneficiaries in other countries and it'll actually be towards the greater good. You think there's no chance of that?
1: Look, I think it's going to be it's going to be hard. But, you know, that's the purpose of this book, is to hold people to account and to try and make people see more clearly and to recognize that, you know, it's not just to brothers, who I think some people felt like it was easy to malign. And we didn't talk about it today, but the the Kielburgers are amazing visionaries, but they remind me, and I say this in the book of Steve Jobs, which is, you know, someone who is, you know, lionized when things are going great, but also really hard charging and can alienate people and can inspire negative feelings too. And people like that are Elon Musk or pick anyone you like, visionaries who it's also easy to hate or feel are different in some way and pick on. And I think that's going to be really hard to redeem in Canada. And I think, you know, the cost of that has been, you know, that a lot of people have suffered and lost a lot. I'd love to see some of it restored though.
0: I think all the beneficiaries of We Charity would like to see it restored. And there's many lessons here. Would you say that there's like an overarching takeaway?
1: I think the overarching takeaway for me is that in any society, it's really important for the public to give people the benefit of the doubt, to avoid rushing to judgment, to demand, to put really high expectations on the media, to provide critical facts and to, you know, hold politicians to account when, when you found out they've lied to you. And I don't think those are new, innovative thoughts. I mean, that, that's just been true in every society everywhere. But I think, at least for Canadians, I mean, this showcases how things can go really wrong and you know, your social fabric can be really badly damaged. And I think few people have been held to account here. I should just add, you know, one of the themes that of the book is that this is just unjust. And I think justice, you know, as a lawyer, we talk about that, we use that word a lot, but you just felt over and over again that it just seems so unjust and the justice wasn't done. And that's one of the reasons, you know, in addition to this podcast, you can also get the book now in podcast form on Spotify. We made it available free on Spotify now. And the audio book- Better call Paul's free too. (laughs) Just I didn't know that. Um, no, but uh, one of the things I did was I asked the audiobook is actually read by Martin Luther King III. And he's the eldest son of Martin Luther King Jr. and very involved, obviously, in social justice efforts. And it was really important. It was really wonderful when he agreed to read the audiobook. And you can buy that audiobook or you can get it compartmentalized in podcast form on Spotify or Apple Books. And, and we wanted to make that available. And I wanted to make it available free uh, rather than just try and sell it because. I want people to hear the story. And I thought his voice lent a lot of credibility to this view that what's happened is just, is really unjust. And I think people, that name's synonymous with that. Well, thank you so much
0: for the audience, for those who are in Zoom and still here. And Tafik, thank you. And Milbank and Saba, and Saba Nee for hosting this event.
1: It was great. And thanks to everybody for for joining and all those groups. And thank you, Paul, for uh, being a great host and keeping it entertaining too. My pleasure. Make sure that you're subscribed to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you choose to listen, and we'll be back next week. Better Call Paul is produced and edited by Valentino Rivera, Marco Siler-Gonzalez, and assistant producer Lisa Sanders. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next week. Take care, everyone.